0: Everyone and welcome to your property podcast. And today, you've got myself, Michelle Cairns, your host, and Anne Carrad Hoenn. Hi, Anne Carrad. Hello. Welcome. And today, we have got Jilly Barlow with us now Jilly is going to be talking about her service accommodation business and her creative strategies and creative ways of uh, acquiring properties with little or none of her own money so we are very uh, excited to hear all about that so Jilly could you hi
1: hi it's fantastic to be here thanks Michelle for letting me come on and talk about something I'm passionate about
0: Oh, that's great to have you. Can you just tell us a bit of background about yourself uh, for people who don't know yeah. you? Yeah,
1: so um, I came, I'm an identical twin. I came out of school at 16 with uh, nothing. Um, I always put it down to the fact that I was an identical twin but I just don't think I was very bright in that area. That's okay though. <laughs> Um, well, what was your correlation between coming out of school with nothing and being a twin? Uh, because we were, we were identical. Nobody, the teachers couldn't cope with us being identical. So we just got into trouble. I mean, by the time you're 14 and they think you're being telepathic when you're not, you milk it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did you ever sort of go to each other's lessons or like try to oh, be yes. each other? Oh, yes. <laughs> you get to the point where you have to start joking about it because you know what? we were so identical at one point. I remember when we were 18 and I was sitting, we were driving, but one of us was driving and other was, it was that time where you didn't need seat belts. well, well before you were born. And <laughs> was, one of us was sitting in the middle of the two backs of the two front seats, you know, up front. And I can't remember which one it was, but all I remember is I looked in the mirror and had to pull a face because I didn't know if it was me or Sarah. <laughs> so at school on a comprehensive system, they don't like it if they don't know which one they just hold off. Mm. So you get to the point where you need to be told off because you just get cheeky. And um we didn't learn a lot. But I used that as the reason. Potentially it was that, but possibly I just wasn't extra bright, you know. Who knows? I'll never know, will I? <laughs> but yes, so I came out of school with nothing. Um Bought up in a, a, a wonderful environment, a farmhouse environment with three siblings, two older sisters and Sarah, and my twin, who's 10 minutes younger than me. And, um, but had a quite a difficult uh, childhood as well um, in many ways. So a beautiful place to grow up, fantastic siblings, uh, but quite a difficult upbringing. Uh, but funny enough, uh, although Sarah and I thought we were just rubbish at everything. I mean, we always believed we were rubbish at everything. Anything we were relatively good at, we had to work so hard at. Um, We loved music. Sarah played the violin, I played the cello, but we had to work really hard to be okay at it. Do you know what I mean? So there was nothing that we dreamed of being a protege in something, Uh, but we just weren't. We were rubbish at everything. We were girls and we were the third and fourth girl where my dad would like a boy. Um, The bizarre thing was, We had our hair cut so that it looked like somebody put a pudding bowl on top of us. So we weren't boys, but we looked like boys. So it was a bit of the worst of everything, really. Um, And yet, I had an underlying self belief. Don't know where it came from, but from a very young age, I thought it would be okay, and I thought I'd be okay. And I've always had a very positive outlook on life. um, From you know whether I'll end up with money. or whether I would end up with money and whether I'd end up with uh, a great family. And also, uh, I, I just believe that I never had a real fear of what people thought of me. And I think in today's society, and I'm sure it's been for many years, people worry so much about what people think. And it actually skews often the way their future goes. Because they look out, they, they want to please so much. And I think that I've learned more and more about that over the past few years. But early on, for some reason, I just was okay in my own skin, even though I was rubbish at most things. And it was just the sort of a good foundation to begin really for me. So that was sort of my earlier life. And then moving on to how did you get into property? Well, my mum had said that from the age of seven, she thought I'd be involved in property. Not that I could at seven, but obviously she's seen. Uh, things that I did, I used to constantly look in estate agent windows. Now, back then, when I was seven, sort of in the dinosaur era, there was only estate agency you could get into, because there was no other um, job related to, uh, to, to property. And I would never have wanted to become an estate agent. But I just loved it. And it was many years on that I worked out, it was a lot to do with the history of the property that I loved. And also... I wanted to go back in time and see how the people in the property survived and lived. It was the people. And for many, many years, I thought property was what I really loved. And then I realized that it was the people I loved and the property. So to be involved in a, in a business where I'm helping people and dealing with property is just the epitome of wonderfulness for me. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, I always liked to look at property, but I had no money. So uh, I eventually went off to Africa um, at the age of 21, where I ran safari, helped run safari companies. And my very first property was actually due to a dream that I had in Africa. Now, even when I got back from Africa and bought this property, I was gutting fish in a fish farm earning £8,000. So, you know, I couldn't have bought a one, door, you know, one door of a house here. Mm. But I had a really, really brilliant mindset. And that wasn't said in an arrogant way because I had the mindset back then that I want everybody to have now, but I didn't know it was a clever mindset. It was just actually probably a belligerent, stubborn mindset at the time. Mm -hmm. But it was that I was going to get it. The question was how? Mm -hmm. And actually in property, that's a pretty good mindset to have. Because so often we're told we can't get it. So often we're told we won't get it. But if it's something that you want badly enough and it's sensible, I mean, you know, we're not talking about going and buying palaces and castles and things like that, but it's sensible. And why not have a mindset that says, I'm gonna get it, the question is how? Now, obviously I have no money. So I had to work on a strategy, not that I even understood the word strategy. I had to work out what that was. So right back then, in 1989, um, I've sort of worked on strategies that I haven't known to be clever. They've just been the way that I've done things. Um, I moved on, and I ended up with that property with no money in. Uh, and I've still got it. I bought it for 175000 without any of my money, and that it's worth $1.2 million now. Um, and then I moved on, and even when I built my own house... Uh, I had no, I would got a slightly better job, but I approached the person that owned the land and I said, if you give me 10 years to pay this off, I'll give you three times its value. I had no idea I was doing an option. I mean, this was in 1992. Options weren't discussed. I had no idea that the solicitors exchanged a pound. I just thought of a way in which I could do it, not realizing that it was quite a clever strategy so that's sort of how i began in property and that was well before i got involved in any networking or any groups or anything like that and to be honest the chalet was bought because i wanted it i wanted to take disabled children there in the summer it wasn't to be wise in property or to be savvy or to gain a great big portfolio it was Mm. just what i wanted
0: Mm. and how did you get into the sort of service accommodation side of things then
1: so it was probably in 19 oh sorry no 2000 and i'd done quite a lot of property by now and um i fell across a pub it was on the market um for 900 well it had been on the market for 950000 uh but when i found it it was on the market for 875 and I ended up offering an option on it. It it didn't happen. I then offered a cash purchase on it from an investor's money. It was accepted and then unfortunately rejected. Um, And then in the end, uh, she came back to me, the vendor desperate because the buyer had fallen out of bed and she was now about to be repossessed. So I ended up doing an option on this deal and turned it into a guest house. And that was the beginning of my service accommodation days, really
0: did you know from day one you were you really wanted to do the strategy
1: i have always loved uh the sort of the the people side of of property and but not so much in i like the the entertaining i not that i did any any entertaining but i like the whole um what's the terminology um uh i can't think what the word is now uh, where you're doing, um, guest houses and hotels and, um, all sorts of other things. Hospitality. Hospitality. That's the word. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Gone out of my brain. So I quite like that whole hospitality, but more importantly, when I go into a building, I look at the floor plan and I want to sweat the asset. I want to make sure that the money in it is working hard, whether it be mine or someone else's. I want to make sure that I can get the most out of that property. And it's all down to area and floor plan. What can you make in this space? Now, as an HMO, it would have made me about 5,500. It was 11 bedrooms. At the time, I would have got 500 pounds a room. But then I would have had to pay all the bills. Now, my mortgage was 5,000 pounds. My mortgage eventually would be 5,000 pounds. And whilst investor money was in, it was still going to be four 5,000 pounds, somewhere around that area. So an HMO wasn't going to work. So I thought to myself, what would work? Now it was 0.4 of a mile away from a train station and 10 to 15 minute maximum walk into the city of Oxford. So I did my due diligence and I decided that short lets would work fantastically. And it did, to be perfectly honest, it is a great area. People have always got to understand it's all about location. You can have a castle in a field. And you've got to decide whether it's going to be people or cows that visit it. You've got to understand location is absolutely key, but it's got to be key to the strategy you're looking at. And um, so I set this one up uh, more sort of more bed and breakfasty than serviced accommodation. And there is a difference, but it is short, still short lets. So in terms of due diligence, in terms of uh, requirement uh, for rooms, it's exactly the same. It's just you're offering slightly different things, services. Um, and that was the beginning of it. Mm. So
2: now do you prefer, do you still follow the sort of the guest house model or do you do pure um, service accommodation? So now prefer- it's
1: all service accommodation. Um, that one has, has gone from being a served breakfast to a help yourself breakfast. And I think will become a no breakfast quite <laughs> soon. But all the other ones are literally key codes in the door break there's a kitchen in there that they can use but no no services offered it's just Mm. service accommodation absolutely fantastic
2: so is it like um now do you have like flats so you can you know you have a flat for two or three days or is it sort of like a big house and you just kind of rent the room for two or three days
1: well mine I've got I've got all sorts Okay. Um, what, I, what I want people to understand out there is that service accommodation at the moment is so diverse uh, There are so many, I think many, many people go into service accommodation thinking it's flats Think it's a one bed or two bedroom flat But mm-hmm. actually it can be anything Because at the moment there isn't legislation There's a little bit of legislation in certain parts of the country But on the whole you can have a bedroom in a back room where your child's gone off to university, you can uh, do service accommodation on a yurt in a garden or by a uh, by a river. You can do it on a, a shepherd's hut. You can have service accommodation in a flat. You can have service accommodation in a massive, great big 22-bed house. You know, mm. it, it can be anything. But for mine, the majority of them are largish houses, not massive, uh, you know, between six and... 14 bedrooms um they're all different but i do also have flats okay
2: um you sort of talked about um location based on the strategy so you choose so then we kind of you choose where you want to go based on what you want to do rather you try and fit
1: what you want to do into where you want to so i always say to people pick a strategy or an area first and if you say, absolutely, Jilly, I want to do investment in Cardiff. I'll go, okay, fantastic. Go and find the best strategy for Cardiff. Mm-hmm. If you say, I want to do service accommodation, you need to go and find an area that is subliminal for service accommodation. Don't go and find an area that's okay. Because it could be a bit of a nightmare. And it's, it's something that can be done. You know it's all about how we do due diligence to find that. So, for me now, I mean, service accommodation, I found the property, so I didn't do that in the initial stages, but then I said, Okay, what can this be used for? and I fell into it that way. But if you want to do service accommodation, you need to find areas that are conducive to that strategy, otherwise, okay. you're putting a square peg in a round hole.
2: How do you, um, what's your process then of doing the due diligence to find out? What you want to do works. Okay, uh, so
1: many people um, go to spare. Um, they go to Airbnb. They go to Booking.com. They go. They use AirDNA, which is a, um, a which helps a little bit with regard to uh, due diligence and um, finding out information for Airbnb. But it's just not good enough. And when you do these things, um, what people have to remember is that with air, um, with uh, service accommodation, there is a booking window. And sometimes it's as much as three or four months. But generally, you're looking at booking windows of between one night and two weeks. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to get any regular business um, come in early. We get plenty of non-refundable rates. You might get bookings in in August when you're in January. But many, many will book in a two-week period. And so if you're going onto booking.com to look at what's booked over the next year, you're going to have a horrible fit when you realize that very little is. You're going to use that as, your, as part of your due diligence, but it's false information if in that particular area the booking window is one night to two weeks because it's not going to show as booked so the only thing you can do with booking.com and 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 such platforms such as avivo and any of these is if you have people working for you and you've already got them you can ask them to do due diligence to tell you what the occupancy rates were and the revenues were for the year before so that they can tell you all the results of a year before but generally that's very hard uh, data to get hold of so the way that i teach people to do it and and this is really easy and this is so, so brilliant is you've got to, you've got to uh, be practical. So you've got to look at, uh, so if you're doing service accommodation, you've got to decide who's going to be staying in there Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Now, many people will say, Oh, I found this brilliant place, Gilli. It's in Chipping Norton or it's in, I don't know, Burford. Or I'm down South, so I'm picking holiday destinations. I go, that's fantastic. Who's going to stay in it? Oh, Julie, you know, absolutely chocker in the holidays. Remember, there are only 13 weeks of holiday a year. The rest is not holiday periods. There are only two days of a, week of a week that are a weekend. The rest are weekdays. So actually, if you were going to choose between a holiday period and working workers or professionals, you've got to be looking at the professionals because it's five days a week. Sometimes people would say four because they're not so staying Friday night. But sometimes they say Sunday, it's Sunday night for the Monday morning. Um, and you've also got 13 out of 52. So however many weeks are left of that, is far more. Mm. So you're looking at 37 weeks or 30, 30 something weeks that you need to fill that is far better than filling your 13 weeks of holidays. Now, obviously, it's brilliant if you can hit both criteria. So if you're looking to fill in the first instance, the five days of the week, Who's going to be, who's who's your criteria? Well, it's not families on the whole, except for holiday periods. It's going to be professionals probably because workers are going to have a place to stay, aren't they? The other people are uh, tradesmen. So there are lots and lots of companies that tender building projects all over the country, whereby the builders have to stay in that place from Monday to Thursday or Friday, but they stay Thursday night. And there are many, 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 Um, Service accommodation uh, properties that uh, have uh, basically tradesmen, builders, uh, that go there for maybe a whole year, or six months, or or four weeks, or six weeks, whatever, Monday to Thursday, yeah? Staying Thursday night, Monday to Friday. So that's brilliant. So it doesn't have to just be professionals, but you've got to find a body of people that are going to want to use that place on those days. Now, ideally, the Friday, Saturday and Sunday, you're going to be in an area that they want to come and visit. So I've got one in Warwick. Now, very, pe- very few people talk about investing in Warwick. Oh, my word. Loads of people do it in Coventry down the road. But I tell you what, you've got IBM, you've got National Grid. You've got uh, Jaguar Land Rover that are all equal distance between Coventry and Warwick. But you haven't got a castle in Coventry. And I tell you one thing, they're never going to move it. So people come at weekends to visit the market town, to come to the, 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 the markets and, and visit the castle all the way through the year. All the way through the year. So you've got these massive corporate organizations and you've got a castle. So they're visiting something. That doesn't mean they won't visit Coventry because it's beautiful. So I'm sure it'll work there too. But you're finding a place that is conducive to as many bookings throughout the year as possible. So once you've got this place and you think it's a good idea, the really practical thing then to do is to, to find maybe three or four in the area that might resemble yours. Yeah? Not serviced accommodation usually if there's nobody on site. You want to go to a bed and breakfast. You want to visit it for the night. Now if you visit it for the night... Um, and you know that there's gonna be some staff there, it doesn't matter if they're the owners or they're not. If they're serving you breakfast, and you go, oh, this is such a beautiful place, must be full all year. They're gonna go, no, oh no, no, dead in January. You're finding out absolute genuine information from the horse's mouth. Now, if you meet the owner on reception and you say, I love this place, it's all about building rapport, it's so lovely. You must find yourself so busy all the way through the year. It must be so tiring. You know, you're finding out absolute meat. You're finding out the real stuff. And in the same way, if you now know your area, you could go on to um, booking.com. And this is where this, this serves a purpose or onto Airbnb or wherever. And I would say to you, go and, find, go and put in a price Go and put in a, uh, try and get the pricing for a Wednesday or a Thursday or probably a Tuesday or Wednesday and a Saturday for every month of the year for five different properties. Now that doesn't take very long. Wednesday, weekday, Saturday, weekend, get a price for January, February, March, April, probably mid month. So let's say the 15th and the 18th of the month or something. And you literally get a pricing for five different properties for a Wednesday and a Saturday for every month of the year. See if they're all singing on the same hymn sheet. Now, if you've got one property that's exponentially higher than another, look at it, why? Why? Why is this one bringing, why is it more expensive? Where is it in relationship to the town? Does it have parking? Does it not have parking? Because what you want to do is you want to find an average price so that you can work out what you're going to be earning. You already know vaguely what the occupancies are going to be because of the due diligence you've done. Yeah? And you can now times that by your average price. You now need to look at your worst case scenario, your best case scenario, and your most likely. So that's just a little bit of how I would suggest you do your due diligence. I could go on for hours.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned there about the occupancy rates. I think that's, they're the two key things that people really get stuck on because they think, well, how am I going to, how do I know how, you, you know, how how much time i'm gonna be able to fill this property mm.
2: I, i've seen people as well in the past they go um yeah these numbers are based off 100 occupancy <laughs> you go in what in what world is they ever going to be 100 occupancy absolutely.
1: absolutely and and so you must never think that um what, what i always do is say start at 70 percent So let's work our figures out at 70%. We don't know we're going to get 70% at the moment, but you've got, before you start doing enormous amounts of due diligence on whether that will fill, yeah. you want to know if 70% will work from a financial point of view. So if you've been able to find out, which you can from booking.com, Airbnb, Expedia, whatever, your Wednesday and your Saturday, your average price throughout the year, and you've worked that out, you now could start at 70% and say, right, if I was to uh, fill it 70% at this average price, would I be making the profit that makes me happy? All right. Now, if you aren't, then there's a lesser chance that it will be the right area. But what you want to do then is find out what occupancy does make your price and be happy. So if it's 80%, you at least know before you begin. Now, for some people, I remember somebody the other day coming to me and they said, Oh, I've done it, Julie. I've done what you told me to do. And, um, I'm happy with a 40% occupancy. And I said, buy 10. (laughs) You know, because that's very rare. Obviously, we need to fill it with a 40%. But, you know, generally, I think if you start doing the calculations at 70, you might find that you're fine at 60. But there's no point in doing any further due diligence Mm. if you think that your occupancy's got to be so high that the pressure's going to be so enormous. Mm. And it's got to be at that average price. So then... Yeah, sorry.
2: sorry. Um, no, I was just going to say if you if your numbers work at forty percent, I'm the type of person that can get away with as little work as possible. So if I go, oh, I know my house is going to be fine at forty percent, that won't uh, encourage me to do as much work as maybe knowing that I need to do seventy or eighty percent to make money. I think money. That the
1: thing is, it's always about um, the profit that you need to make to be happy. So, so my, one of my favourite favorite sayings in the whole wide world, I'm sure uh, Michelle's heard me say this so many times, is comparison is a thief to joy. So don't compare with what other people want. If if your 40% gives you your profit and be happy, and you're able to be financially free and go off and do what you absolutely love, don't worry about what everybody else thinks you should be doing. If on the other hand, with very little work, you can get 60% because I totally believe that service accommodation can be done passively if set up correctly. So my son's got a little hotel. He went off to Africa for three months. Didn't need to be there. So it's all a question of, I went to a meeting last night in London and there's a lady speaking there who'd got into service accommodation. And she said, whatever you do, if you're going to service accommodation, be really careful. It's a nightmare. And I was a very good girl and I didn't stand up and and, (laughs) and argue the case. But if it's set up correctly, it is as passive as you want it to be. You have to start with it being the right area for the strategy. And you have to start by understanding what the occupancy is likely to be as a most a most likely case scenario. As I said, if 40% is all you need, that's all that matters. But if it's passive anyway, and you can go off and do what you like and do very little work, you may as well get more if you can. You know, mm-hmm. the, um, you're saying
0: it, you can set it up as passive as, as possible, and I, I can see how that could be done. Um, and I think the key is setting it up right from the beginning. getting everything in place um how would you say that that would then compare to in like a hmo because obviously doing sales accommodation there's more profit that's why you're doing it in comparison to a hmo but if both are passive um how much more work is it in that passive state if you like than just a regular hmo
1: okay so you can choose so for me, I believe mine's passive. So if I tell you that the three hotels I've got in Oxford, I a genuinely hand on heart. I probably go to them twice a year and they're 20 minutes down the road. And if I go to the, my biggest one, it's because I'm having a meeting there that's completely aside to the service accommodation business. If I go to my other one, it's because I'm showing people around it, you know? Mm. And if I'm going to the other one, it's because somebody needs to, ask me a question you know I just don't go there um but the area that I do do because I choose to do it is I like to check the revenue I, revenue management so every week I like to check oh are there any rooms available oh I can put the prices up I like to manipulate the prices I don't need to it would, it would cost me 10 minutes a day uh to, to, to I could employ someone for 10 minutes a day to do that but I enjoy that so, so, so mine isn't completely passive because I want to do that and I can do it from a beach in, 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 Honolulu. It doesn't matter as long as I've got Wi-Fi. I can see what rooms should go up and what rooms should go down. But apart from that, it is passive. Um, so it is however passive you want it to be. I think that the, 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 the difference between an HMO, I mean, it's massive. So yes, obviously we look at a single let bringing in, I'd know giving you 6 to 10% ROI. We look at an HMO, hopefully giving you no less than 20% ROI, but hopefully between sort of 20 and 50% ROI. And we look at service accommodation, blowing all that out the water. Although we have to remember VAT, which always hits us hard, okay? when I mean, you don't get that with HMOs. But with um, uh, the, the work involved in an HMO, I think that the here i am comparing because with an hmo unless you've got somebody uh taking it for five years as a rent to rent which is what i do with my hmos because i don't want anything to do with them there's always a management going on because if you've got a management company doing it you've actually got to manage the management company Mm -hmm. because we know too many we've heard too many stories haven't we where they haven't Mm -hmm. done it properly and there are rats outside and that the door that door light doesn't work Mm -hmm. and the bedrooms are falling apart and nothing works you know i'm not saying all management companies are like that but it does happen Mm. so you do have ultimately you're responsible right Mm. um with a um serviced accommodation there's none of that there's none of that and i tell you what the joy to me is of service accommodation in comparison to hmos Mm. is if you get a nightmare tenant with an hmo you potentially don't get any money Mm. you potentially have to take them to court it could take months and you have to go through the horrible process of eviction. With service accommodation, if you have a rogue tenant in, they're usually only there for a night. And guess what? You can chuck them out. <laughs> have
2: you heard any of the, you know, on Facebook, I'm always seeing like the horrible party cases where somebody's obviously hired the room for one or two nights just to have a massive blowout and they leave it in their complete horrible state. Have you had any sort of terrible experiences like that?
1: No, I've had different uh, bad experiences, but where parties are concerned, you learn to take a deposit. Mm. I mean, they pay anyway, but they have to—they have to pay over and above a deposit, and that's just something you can choose to do or not. It's not something that you can't do through legislation, and it's not something you have to do. But you know, if you've got a stag night going in there, you know, mm. it's—it is it, to me, it's common sense, um, and I think that. You know, obviously everybody pays in advance, um, so the money's there, but uh, deposits are something you, you, you know, it's, it's about being sensible. But it's also, you know, if they're taking the whole house, that's great because nobody else gets disturbed. And I have to think very hard when people decide to take, and we often have wedding parties because in Oxford, the, you know, they like to take the whole place. But if they're not taking the whole place, we've got to be careful to consider other guests. And that's, again, common sense. Uh, we've had other situations which have been pretty unpleasant. Um, but they come and go really fast.
0: Um, <clears throat> in terms of uh, management then and because I just see service accommodation as it's a it's a it's a business model different than HMO whereas management. I don't I don't know if it's like a, every day you've got the guests coming through. And uh, I think what one thing it's kind of put me off doing it is just I can see how intense mm-hmm that work needs to be on a daily basis for God knows how long until it's all set up and passive. Um, But what do you do to make it passive from day one or set yourself up to win if you like?
1: Okay. So um, it's two separate things there really. Um, The first thing is the setup. So when I am helping people or teaching people, I explain that there's the, there's you've got to decide what your tenant types are going to be it's massively important because how you set up the property is is all to do with what their expectations are. So I always say to people, there are many, many different forms of service accommodation. We've already talked about that. So who are your guests going to be? What are their expectations? And what are they going to pay you? So in this instance, while setting up, it's all about their expectations. So are you going to give them tea and coffee in the room? Are you going to give them water in the room? Will they get soaps in the room? Will they have... um, Uh, A percolator? Will they have a heated bed? Will they have, um, you know, all these different things, a television? Will it have a DVD player? Or will it be a smart television? Will they have those little um, uh, tablets in the room, which teach them all about the area that they're in, where they can also get Wi-Fi? It's up to you, but you've got to decide that. And so what you want to do is you want to go through, the most important thing is to look at everything that needs to be done in advance. Because too often people get caught short when they open up their premises and they're now trying to find a week before their laundry company or they're trying to find out which OTAs they're going to use. And what I mean by that is Booking.com, Expedia, Airbnb. I mean, there are loads of them. I've got about 90 channels opened. okay. and they need to decide which ones they want to use. But also they have to have a marketing platform. So that might be that they only use booking.com. So their platform is booking.com. I use a company called Avivo and they literally have every single, I think of it as a platform and trains going from a station and they have every train going from the station. But what's brilliant is they all talk to each other. So it's real time. It's, you don't have to worry about it. It is incredibly difficult to get a double booking. So you've got to decide in advance which of these processes and platforms you're going to use for your marketing what companies you are going to use for your laundry what who's going to be cleaning the property and if you they're the major things now i would suggest i mean one of my properties i do do this but for the norm i would suggest you use the cleaning company because if you have a great cleaner and they get sick or their children get sick or they go on holiday it's up to you then to fill their spot space whereas if you're using a company they're in there seven days a week whatever comes you know whatever happens all through the year for 365 days you never have to think about it so it's setting up it's it's understanding those are the things you have to do in advance now the really brilliant thing is none of them cost you any money till you start Mm. the cleaner's not going to charge you the laundry company's not going to charge you The platform's not going to charge you. I think for some of these platforms, they charge £9.97 or, you know, some Mm. they they might have a fee. I think Avivo actually was uh, £49 or something to help you set up. But really, there's no money involved. But what it means is when those doors open, you've got bookings. Mm. So it's understanding that there are certain things you need to do in advance. Once you've got those things set up, you now need to get ready. So getting ready... It's not about an, in advanced stuff. It's about the now stuff. What are we going to do in these rooms? How are we going to dress them? What are we going to offer these people? You know, we know what we're looking for. You know, it doesn't, if you're doing uh, shortlets for professionals and you suddenly get a load of um, contractors that want to have uh, a rooms, it doesn't mean you have to change anything. But you know what? If the contractors are there for three months, you might want to put a little fridge in their bedroom you know, they'll probably have three rooms, beds in there. So they'll pay the same as the professionals. You've just got them sort of, it's a bit like a dormitory, but they don't mind. It's a really lovely place just with more beds in it. Maybe you put a fridge in there. So it's all about expectation of the people. Now the, 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 the tradesmen aren't going to say, oh, can we have a fridge? But do you think that they might go with you more if you say, look, I tell you what, we'll put a fridge in there, a little mm. mini fridge. So you don't have to, you can make your own tea and coffee with them. You don't have to have these little cartons. Mm. You, can have, you can put your beers in there if you want to put your beers in there. I so, guess as
2: well, um, sorry, dressing the property, it comes down to who you want your tenant to be. Uh, your guest. sorry, who, who is going to be staying there. Because, you know, absolutely. if you're trying to market to the professionals, you wouldn't have a load of board games and leaflets for uh, that sort of... Absolutely.
1: Properties. And absolutely. And the thing is, is that if you're in a place... Uh, like Oxford where for the most part it's professionals but you do have people coming staying the weekend in your uh, corridor or or in your reception area whatever you've got although you don't need a reception area so don't waste too much money on a reception area you can have these fantastic plastic um, sort of uh, leaflet holders and people come and drop those leaflets off they're completely free so they're all free so you could have stuff that that people might want to visit in Oxford, and stuff for children, just in leaflet form on those, on those, uh, inside those plastic holders. Um, But what you want to do is you want to decide who your main guests are. Now, in the holidays, we get lots of holiday people. But actually, bizarrely enough, our holiday times are the weakest, because actually loads of people come by coach to Oxford, and they go to Stratford upon Avon or stay just outside London because it's cheaper. Does that mean we don't get any? No, not at all. But that came from left field for us because we had to learn that. When I was doing my first year and I was getting ridiculously high occupancies of 80 and 85 and 90, I just thought when August came along, I'd be 100% full.
0: Mm.
1: But I wasn't. I was 47% full in my first year. It was literally bolt out of the blue shock. Mm. So I had to learn how to increase that occupancy during the summer months and during the holidays. And I've managed to do that most of the time. But you do have weak times and strong times and you've got to learn that. That's, that becomes a pattern that you get used to. But yeah. How much, uh, you sort of touched on
2: it briefly before, but how much does price sort of
1: play into uh, whether it's a weak time or a strong time? Massively. So uh, I have to be completely honest, in my first two years, I didn't have a clue what revenue management went, meant. And I had the same prices throughout the year for every single night. That was hilarious <laughs> then, you know we had a single bed with 105 double bed was 125 and king bed was 135 and it remained like that on a sunday and a saturday on a monday and a saturday on a january week and an august week and a september and a july week it was <laughs> hadn't got a clue but it's massive and you know i was very blessed in that i did exceptionally well but not because i did something right there But what I learned was several years later, a couple of years later, when we put the price up by £5 on a night that it was really quiet, very, very busy, we did that. We started to manipulate prices. Our revenues went up exponentially. The other thing that I used to get very confused about, really, was that I thought occupancy was everything. And I've tried to explain to companies that I'm working with at the moment, would you rather have uh, 100% occupancy and get 2,000 pound profit, or would you rather have 40% occupancy and 10,000 pound profit? It's all about the revenue, Mm -hmm. it's Mm -hmm. all about the money. So if your occupancy is lower, but your prices are higher, it's far more powerful than having a full house and having them on at half price. Mm Because it's costing you every time you have somebody in, from the room space, from the electricity and the gas, from the breakfast, if you're doing breakfast, but from the sheet changes and the pillowcase, you know, it's everything. From the cost of your cleaner, from the maintenance, because they block the toilet, you know, it's everything. So it's, you, you know, I urge you all, don't worry so much about occupancy, it's about the revenue. Mm. But you do have to look at both of them, 100%, which is why I say work out what your average uh, rents will be, your, your um, prices, and then look at different occupancies, occupancy uh, levels to see what you believe is what you need as a minimum and that what you feel is the most likely. And do you know what? In this case, you don't even need to worry about the, um, the best case scenario because that's all a bonus.
0: And what do you do to maximise the revenue then? So you can say, obviously, putting the price up and that might depend on other uh, properties in the area and what they're doing or what you know, they've got external factors, like if there's a concert nearby or whatever, but what are are the factors that are in your control?
1: Okay, so you want to, there there are very, there are quite a few things you can do. Um, Ideally, when you first start, you want to do, uh, and this is all work up to the beginning of, okay? You want to look at the area and you want to look at what's offered in the area. What would be an attraction? So um, for me in Oxford, there are many uh, conferences that go on. Find out at these conference centres and the universities in the summer months and and other times of the year, you know, what are all the conferences? So if you rang up all the conference centres and you were able to get a list of all the conferences throughout the year and how many delegates went to each of those conferences, that's a fairly powerful piece of information, isn't it? Okay, so you will know whether there's a shortage of accommodation at that time of the year because there's 3,000 people coming to a conference and therefore whether you can up your prices in advance. Yeah, and it's really, really crucial. In the same way, you can go to somewhere like booking.com and if you're using them, you get a booking.com manager who helps you. It doesn't cost anything. I had a meeting with mine yesterday and what they do is they, they help you to get 10 of the most similar, similar properties in your area on their books. So they, you, then what you do is you, do, you look at their occupancy and their room rates. So you've got something to, to leverage against, really. You want to know that you aren't £20 more expensive than all the other nine that are similar to you in your area. And that's why you're actually not filling as much as they are. There's also something called genius bookers with booking.com and they have other promos that they can do. Now often you have, so with a genius booker, if I want to be a genius booker, I have to reduce my price by 10% and it's like, Oh my word, that's just horrible. But the thing is, is that you don't have to do it for all your rooms and you can stop at any time. So for instance, I put a genius booker on one of my double rooms for the months of January and February yesterday because I want to up the occupancy and sometimes occupants you know if you're getting very little occupants you're far less than you might normally do you've got to you've got to take that risk you've got to have faith and literally go do you know what I'm going to do a genius booker it'll bring my prices down by 10% but actually the occupancy rise is going to be 80% because that's mm. what statistics say or 40% or whatever so you can get help with that with your Booking.com managers and the managers that you have for your different portals or your OTAs. So it's really, really important to understand the power of that. But in advance, you want to be looking at what the place offers. So in Oxford, we have eight week, which is a rowing competition for the students. We have anyone with a university, they're going to have graduation weeks. And that's usually July and September. They're also going to have interview weeks in Oxford. It's the first two weeks of December. So I don't go around doing all this now. I did this at the very beginning. Okay, so it, it, it it's it's just clever in terms of revenue management. I don't believe personally that advertising in other ways helps. I've advertised in the universities before, doesn't do anything. Please remember that Booking.com spends something in the range, I believe, forgive me if I'm wrong, but 2 million a day on marketing. We are never, ever going to beat Booking.com. So a lot of the advertising people do, it falls on blind eyes and deaf ears. You know, I used to do it into Airbnb magazines and stuff, and I'm not saying it doesn't work, but what I'm saying is a large part of your marketing is done for you in the uh, the the OTAs, the booking.com, the Aviva, the Speedia, Expedia, the uh, the Late Rooms, the Lastminutes.com, etc. etc., Travago, Google, there are so many now that all do this. Um, but the the marketing the 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 due diligence you want to do related to stuff that goes on in the area will help you determine your prices in advance for seasons it can really help Hmm. Um, about marketing um, I guess
2: how much do you rely on direct bookings because I see on Facebook all the time people are sort of like question how do you get direct bookings like do
1: you think that's important or is that Direct booking complaints, they're great because um, you're not paying a commission and the commissions for these OTAs are not small. They are hefty, but with them comes, you know, if you're in the right area, bookings without effort. Okay, so if you can get them on your, uh, your off your website or phones, if you've got a phone with essays, you don't want phones, but um, on your own website, that's fantastic because you're not paying for uh, the commission. So it's about how we go about doing that. And I do think that you'll, you'll find that for the majority, and I'm not saying this is definitely for everybody, you will find that you will get, the minority of your bookings will be direct. And you'll find it a real struggle to make them the majority. But you still want to get as many as you can. So I've looked at this a lot. And I know that when I first set up, I thought it was really important to have a great website. And it was, you know, and I spent far too much time trying to get the website on the top of Google. And of course, as I've said before, you're never going to beat booking.com. You know, you do need a website and you do need, because you need somewhere to send people. Um, and you want them to book direct if you can but don't spend thousands of pounds don't let it worry you too much it's it's having a place to send them it's having a a presence you know Um, and that's it okay so how do you get people to go to your website it certainly isn't going to be google i mean you, you you know you can get get your your site as high as you can but don't stress about it too much in my view it's just my opinion Things like TripAdvisor are very, very good. So becoming a member of TripAdvisor means that you have your your phone number and your email at the top of the advert. Now, will people uh, dial direct? They might. And you have far greater chance of them dialing direct off TripAdvisor than you do uh, by searching Google probably. But there is something else you can do on TripAdvisor um there are it may have upgraded so again i'm not completely um as to the exact way it works at the moment but there are they there are three boxes and the the generally the top one is booking.com followed by expedia followed by whatever now you can pay to be in one of those boxes. And that I believe, I've not done it, but I believe that would bring in a lot of bookings. Because what people do is they click on the first button they see. Oh, booking.com, they, they might not see in tiny font at the top of your advert, your phone number and your email. Now people that want to go direct will look for that. But loads of people just click on the first box. And these are sort of fairly, um, you know, book with booking.com. Book with Expedia. Now, if you're on one of those boxes, does it matter if you're on the top one? Probably not. There are only three. And if you put book direct, um, et etc. et cetera. So I think that could work really, really well. Uh, but I think with booking direct, it's got to be other than that, you're looking at uh, word of mouth and also return clients, returning clients. So in Oxford, we get a lot of return, you know, people coming back. Um, It's all about the client. So if they've been unhappy about something, it's about offering them something um, unless they're a complete nightmare and then just say, sorry, that we weren't able to help you and best go somewhere else next time. Um, You know, you don't want to be uh, you will find there will always be people that aren't happy. I'll never forget when I was in Africa. I, I I remember it was an absolute passion of mine to make sure the stubbornest of uh, clients went away saying it was the best holiday ever. And, you know, sadly, it was usually the British. You showed them a hippo, they wanted a lion. You showed them a lion, they wanted a cheetah. You showed them a cheetah, they wanted a tiger. And I tried to explain they didn't come from Africa. But you will find that in service accommodation, when you're doing nightly rates, there will be people that will just not be happy with anything. And you have to learn, you know, my son gets really upset still when he has a bad review and I say people will give bad reviews sometimes even when you've got a beautiful place and sometimes there will be a hair in the bathroom heaven de burgatroyd but your client you know that you, you you it it will happen sometimes even if you get 10 out of 10 regularly for cleanliness and there will be people that don't like the fact that they've got to you know, in one of my guest houses, we do have breakfast, self. Uh, they help themselves, but there's one big table. We had to share a table. But 99% of them love it because they get to meet people, you know? Mm. Whatever you do, it will be wrong for some people. And that's just, we just got to... Expect great. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And let it go over yeah. your head. Yeah. You know? Because for the majority, they'll love it if you're producing a good quality uh, service accommodation. And that's really important. Don't forget that You know, as we said before, it's about expectation. There will be two things that every single client will want, and that's cleanliness and Wi-Fi. Mm. And then you build from there. So sometimes that's all they want.
2: Mm.
1: They want clean sheets, they want quiet, and they want Wi-Fi. Mm. But but then you build up from that, and some will want something something else and something else and something else and something else and something else. And that's all about expectation.
2: Mm, I guess it's hard as well because there's so much competition nowadays. Um, but, you know, I've just come back from a holiday and I had a really, really great Airbnb. So it's going to be kind of hard to, like, not comp- if you've had a great experience somewhere, not compare to that one great place. Because everywhere's not the same. But do you know what Probably I
1: mean? Not, but then you, you, you can be sure to decide what write down what was so wonderful about that place and make sure mm. the next place has it. So if it's a sea view or it's hair dryers or it's air conditioning or it's a big bedroom or it's a comfortable bed or it's a power shower, or, you know, you you can determine what those are and most places will tell you what, you know, you can find that out even if you, mm. if you want to really be a pain to the vendor and ring them every five minutes and say, oh, can you tell me this? It's absolutely your prerogative. Um, in terms of competition, in terms of the... You, you know the person who's got the business as opposed to the person coming to visit that's all about area so and many many people are going. but isn't oxford saturated isn't this saturated isn't that saturated you know if i'm to be completely honest you know things will change you know 10 years ago people didn't know what service accommodation was You had hotels you know they might have done i think there was service accommodation but for the most part we didn't know about it we weren't selling it or doing it as a strategy probably five years ago, most people weren't, seven years ago maybe, but it's become more and more popular. And in the same way that service accommodation is the new sort of popularity in terms of strategy, HMOs were 10 years ago, Mm. you know? And there'll be another one that will come along. But the most important thing always with whatever strategies you're doing, you've got an exit strategy. You have to have an exit strategy. So with all mine, I know that they work either as service accommodation and HMO, so they'll have an HMO license, or they work as service accommodation, but they would break beautifully into flats and it's conducive to the area, or it would turn very well into a family house and there's a shortage of family homes. You've got to look at what you're going to do with it if it doesn't work. Now, you wouldn't do if it's not going to work, but will times change? I don't know. I don't know. Will interest rates go up? I don't know. We have to be very open to change. So with service accommodation, will legislation be brought in? Of course it will. Will the government make money out of it? Of course they will. How will that be done? Not sure. Can we put things in place to hopefully make sure that we don't have to only do it for three months of the year? Yes, we can. And it's understanding what that looks like Mm. so that you're covering every base. That was like one of my questions
2: actually, is sort of like, where do you see service accommodation evolving in the next couple of years? Because there's sort of, there are murmurations, sort of, you know, there's sort of murmurs going around that there's, there might be some regulation or legislation
1: coming in. That... I will, well, there will, and when it happens, who knows? Um, I should imagine they'll bring out a criteria specific to service accommodation, but they're gonna have a struggle, in my view, to um, determine the difference between that and several other things that we've already got. Now, a hotel used to be something that you had to, you got given an evening meal in. No longer is it that. Uh, the only one that differentiates itself is bed and breakfast because it's telling you you're getting breakfast. Okay. But what's a guest house? You go and look at the criteria of a guest house. It's no different to service accommodation. Mm.
2: what's the difference between... You know, somebody like you who's got houses of rooms and me renting out my spare room just to sort of make an extra 20 quid
1: on the weekends. There is no criteria. Mm. There's nothing. So, so at the moment, there is nothing to say that one's different to the other. Um, the, the, at the, for, for hotels and guest houses that are registered, it's a C1 class usage, okay, as HMOs are C4. You don't have to have a C1 class usage to do it though. Hence, you can do it in your house and rent out a bedroom and I can do it in my yurt in the garden. Not that I have a yurt in the garden. (laughs) And you don't need anything. But I feel that if one was to get C1 class usage on a property now, they can't stop you doing it all year round. Okay, they can't. When legislation then comes in, and you've got C1 class usage, I believe that they will struggle immensely to stop you doing it because how can they differentiate between you and a guest house? Now, they may decide, actually, we can differentiate and the way we're going to do that is X. And so therefore, you're going to have a criteria of your own. Will they be able to stop you doing that if you've had a C1 class usage? I don't think so. I mean, who knows? But I don't think so. And so, you know, for mine, I'm I'm running them with HMO licenses, because you're allowed to, at at the end of a certain period, if it's been absolutely stonkingly brilliant, I will change to set up for all of them. I then move across and change to C1 class usage, knowing that as this three month rule goes around the country, we're safe as houses. Hmm. And then at some stage, if they bring in a new uh, criteria for service accommodation, then they do.
0: Yeah, great. That's, uh, That's a really good point glad you brought that one up Mm. um and i think it's just about going back to what we said before about thinking of all of these things before you get started and putting putting as many of those in place so that you're in the best position going forward
1: yeah and i think one of the things that i worry about is that people sort of um go and get teaching but the teaching isn't in the setting up it's the finding the property which Mm. It's not the hard part to do, to be honest. If you know you're in a subliminal area, you'll find a property. But it's, it's, it's not that. It's, and it's not about um, what service accommodation can do for you. It's making sure it's set up properly. Because I've, I had one lady ring me up once and she went, oh Julie, I'm having a nightmare. So I said, what's the problem? She said, I'm doing service accommodation. And I said, so what's going wrong? She said, well, I never see the family anymore and, and the tenants fight. And I go, what? What's going on? Now, she was doing it in the wrong area for the type of tenant that she wanted. She was cleaning the rooms and she was doing the um, she was seeing them all in. <laughs> I, was, I was going, what are you doing? You know, this is just, it, it's not dissimilar to, 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 to what I feel a little bit about management companies. And please, anybody out there who's a management company, I'm not in any way saying people shouldn't use you, but I'm just saying that it's not necessary if it's set up in the right fashion, mm. the right way.
2: So how far into, because you said that you kind of just sort of fell into it because you found a pub and you kind of realised that it worked. So how far into your essay career, I suppose, um, were you that you, you realised that you had to sort of set things up
1: correctly? In my first year, what I know now would have saved me 42000 in my first year on one property. -hmm. One property. So I'm not saying that um, I made a loss. I'm saying that I would have made forty two thousand more, and so that frightens me for people. Uh, And it's just literally knowledge. It's it's you know I went through the process. You know we always say we want people to learn the mistakes we made, and they weren't mistakes necessarily. It was just ignorance. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know. And I now wouldn't do. I wouldn't set it. I I wouldn't ever set up a guest house as a guest house. So, any I've put in options on probably 15 guest houses uh, in the last month to to get as options. And when I get the ones that I get, they won't be having breakfast
2: Mm.
1: because the problem with breakfast and the problem with all these extra things is it needs employing staff. And as Mm. much as I love to employ people, staff are the bane because they're the ones that get sick. They're the ones that suddenly decide that they want to. You know, one of the things that I found out, which has been the toughest learning for me is I had a manager in my first one. And I'm telling you that hospitality is a very, very hard industry for people on their own uh, in things like guest houses. If you're in a hotel where there's a great big team, I'm sure it's different, but hospitality in a place like a guest house or a small hotel where you've got one person is very lonely. And every single one of my managers bar one ended up with an alcohol problem.
2: Mm.
1: So I got rid of my managers. I don't have managers. I don't need managers because I mean, all my other ones have been set up without staff. You know, if you can set your property up to need cleaning cleaners, company, mm. maintenance person and a laundry company, you're done.
2: Mm.
1: And, 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 and it's the, you know I had to learn that so my first year many learnings uh you know but I want people to know what I didn't.
0: Oh well that's yeah. Uh, you know so much content there I think it's really really useful for people to get an insight and and you've obviously got both perspectives there having gone through it uh and learned along the way so.
1: <laughs> so did you want to do the direct talk through the uh, the Iffley townhouse or? yeah we can um, do so you sent know. over so yeah let's just talk through it because it so is that's, quite a interesting. That, that's a real service accommodation uh which um is set up completely differently to a guest house really mm, so
2: it was a seven bed victorian HMO mode turned into an eight bed SA. so yeah just talk through that one how did you find it how did you manage to get an extra bed you've managed you managed to get an Absolute steal! You saved yourself almost two two hundred grand. <laughs> yeah.
1: So yeah. So your townhouse was uh, a property that was bought for me actually by the charity that rent all my HMOs, all my HMOs, uh, and they owned this property, and it was. I have to be completely honest. It was the most unbelievably disgusting property I've ever walked into in my life. I mean, there were, there were hand red handprints on doors. It was paint, not blood. Um, (laughs) I thought that there was, you know, there was words written in red all over the place though. You thought there were bodies under the floorboards, you know, it was the epitome of filth, disgust, how it was an HMO. I can't, I I just will never, ever understand. Uh, You could tell that, you know, it was very wrong. None of the electrics were working. None of, nothing conformed. None of the doors were HMO standard. There were no thumb locks. It was just horrendous. But to me, it was great. And um, it was on for 950,000. It was on actually with an estate agent, but I didn't see it. And they said to me, "Gilly, would you be interested in buying this? Um, and I said, well, I'll have a look at it went into it. I thought, wow, this is ridiculously expensive. So I, 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 I did do well in terms of the deal, but I don't believe it was worth 950. And I think they came to realize that. So I I bought it for what I thought it was worth. Now, uh, I don't for one moment, believe that it happened straight away. I offered uh, the amount that we bought it for in the end. Uh, and they said no. And every time they came back to me because it had fallen out of bed. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't going through. And I think one of the key things that I would love people to know is don't ever hold on to something. Let it go. It's really easy to just hold on to it and go, it's got to work. I'm going to make it work. But what happens is it uses up all your headspace. And if you let it go and it's right, it will come back. And I'm not saying that in terms of, you know, um from a spiritual point of view I'm just saying it will if it you know it'll come back if it's going to come back it comes back mm,
2: that's what everybody is saying to me at the moment I, I had the I found a house to live in and it was my house and then somebody stole it from me <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a little bit heartbroken everyone's like yeah but if it's meant to be it meant to, if it's your house it'll come back on so part of me is like waiting every day looking for this house to come back on but a part of me thinking I should move on
1: but equally, there's probably a better one for you. And when it's a, t- a place you're going to live, it's very different because it's emotional. Mm. With mm. A, with, a, with um, uh, an investment, there are plenty out there, you know, and too many people, as I said before, try and put square pegs in round holes and they'll try and make it work financially and they'll squeeze it. Like, you know, squeeze, squeeze it so much and there'll be nothing in it. And then they got the property they wanted and it's not producing the money they needed because they, they, gone above the price they should have mm. gone up or whatever anyway so i left it came back a third time and i said to them i'm interested uh as an option and they said no no we can't do an option so i said okay delay completion and i said i'm not doing it unless it's a delay completion because i don't want to so i found an investor who didn't want any part of the deal um, but just wanted to learn actually Um, And obviously I gave them, I think it was 7%. So it was a very, very good deal for me. And they put 10% down. But what I agreed and what we agreed was that I wouldn't pay them any interest until money was coming in. Then I'd start paying them on a regular basis. But I'd also pay back what I hadn't paid in the months before that. So I had no, it's really, really clever to try and be savvy in the way that you structure things so that you are not backed up against the wall financially. So I didn't want to be paying for that. So he agreed to that, no problem at all. I then had the rights to go into the property and my business partner, I'd bought in. I'd found the money for the deal. I'd found the property um, and I could just go and get a builder and that would be absolutely fine. But I decided I wanted to invite my builder as a JV. So they actually own half of it and they get half the profits. And I'll tell you why I did that later on. But basically, um, Andy went in, started doing a refurb because we had the rights to do that. Now, we had uh, we'd gone to Shawbrook and Shawbrook had valued it um, at the asking price because that's what they will do, um, because that's what we're buying it for. Um, but they had predicted that it would be worth about 1 million and 90 for some reason after completion. A bizarre number, isn't it? Mm, um, where did they get the 90 from? I don't know. <laughs> but we were very very um fortunate because they agreed to mortgage the property on the new value wow and shawbrook are doing that now I, I think we were the first people they did it with but i don't know um but that meant that we could pull out half our investors money before at uh, the, the point we finished mm-hmm. so our investor put in altogether. um well he put in uh, probably uh, one investor put in 367000 and we had another investor put in 200 but we were able to give back 200000 the day we finished which was amazing mm. um and you know we've we got the rest for 3 years at 7% and um going up to 10% for the last two years. But of course, we're about to refinance. And we're hoping that in refinancing it now, a year and a half on, we'll pull out all the money. And because interest rates are so low, it's gonna be less than the 7% that we're paying. So we'll probably make an extra two grand a month, um, but with no money left in. So we were very, very fortunate in the way that, um, you know, well, it took a bit of persuading for the, the sellers to agree to do the, the delayed completion, but we did the delayed completion. The the eighth room that we've got was um, a bedroom, but it wasn't allowed to be a bedroom as an HMO because it was too small and they, it was just done badly. And it was absolutely tiny, but has an ensuite in it. But obviously with service accommodation, that doesn't matter. So mm. our clients love it because it's the back of the house looking over the yard and it's the most divine, little tiny cute single bedroom with its own bathroom literally it's gorgeous it's got a little leather chair in there and you know fake leather. <laughs> um, and it's just gorgeous now bizarrely enough the hmo department came because we have an hmo and they allowed it to be an eight bed hmo I think that they included the bathroom or something. I'm not mm. sure, but it is an eight-bed HMO now. Um, but it will soon become a C1 class usage. Uh, but it's um, it's been an absolute delight to do. Uh, we had no. When I say we had no problems, because my builder was my JV partner, him and his wife. You know, you know. I used to go there, and all his lads were part of the team. They would be. Singing and playing music, and there was just such a lovely atmosphere. And when a problem came along, I helped them to learn, and they do hopefully builders do this anyway to just solve that problem. You know, Mm. we we weren't going to change all the windows, and we took away all the plastic grot, and the wood behind was completely rotten. Mm. So, yeah, it cost a bit more, it cost a bit more, but we've got the most stunning windows in our property now which will add value to it when we refinance Mm -hmm. um but equally we had a there was a disgusting lean to and they allowed us to put an extension there with a beautiful glass roof with no planning Mm -hmm. so you know it swings and roundabouts but i think that with a happy team it really works i used to write reports it's really good to do this for your investors i used to write reports every two weeks and i try and make them funny you know because Mm -hmm. why not (laughs) <laughs> and one of the other things I did was my investor and his wife got involved with decisions like carpets and flooring and they came with us and they loved it. They picked the flooring for the bathrooms and, and they loved being part of that decision. But it's a beautiful property now. It's Victorian property. It's because of the type of property it is. It's got a beautiful range in the kitchen and it's all floor, you know, beautiful flagstones. Um. And it's done in, in keeping with the property, uh, and all the bedrooms have got en suites. Uh, they all have soap and shampoo, but they don't have tea and coffee machine uh, facilities because that's all in the kitchen, and they can help themselves to all of that. And all the crockery and cutlery is kitted out for them to cook. It's got a big fridge in it with a freezer. It's got cupboards. It's got crockery, and of course, because it's cleaned like uh, every because it's cleaned like a hotel. It always looks spotless one of the things you said earlier michelle was you said what happens with you know it must be a sort of i don't think you use the word nightmare but you know having to you know clean it every day and it's mm-hmm. different to an hmo mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about any of that because you've got a cleaning company in there who are proficient at cleaning hotels mm-hmm. and guest houses so mm-hmm. it is spotless so when you go into that place if you go for a visit you will find it absolutely mm-hmm. spotless and you'll be going on oh, my word it looks like it was when it, when we did it that is the joy and, the, and and what I love against an HMO. Mm. So this property has has done very well. Um, our first year, it's eight beds. Our first year produced, um, I think, one hundred and sixty-seven thousand. But it wasn't a uh, it was April, and we had one of the rooms blocked out because we had a damp problem that we had to sort. Um, and we will be hitting a minimum of one hundred and ninety for the second year. Um, so we're very happy with that. And that it, it's always different, different in different parts of Oxford. Um, that's uh, not the same side as my other two. But differs very much to um, my one with breakfast. I've got another one down the same road as the one with the breakfast, but it's much smaller and it, and it differs again. Different product.
0: Mm. Uh, well, <laughs> You, you've just got so much to share, and uh, I feel bad <laughs> stopping it. But you have yeah, gone well too. over time, so loved it. Loved there. Well, have to, we'll, have to, no, we'll have to, it's great. It's uh, fantastic for our listeners. So thank you so much for just being like really open and sharing with us. So not at all. I love it. Thank you for
1: having
0: me. Great. Oh, thank you. Okay. Well, um, I encourage you Oh you yeah
1: have, Well, have you got oh,
0: anything? yes, to, pl- to plug? Plug your courses.
1: Oh yes. Okay. So, um, for anybody that's interested, I do run a service accommodation course. I set it up purely and simply because I didn't want people to lose the money I lost in the first year. And it's crucial information that can make a massive difference. It's stuff regarding council that I had no understanding of in terms of business rates and how you can actually control to a degree what they are. I, I now can't and i've had to appeal over and over again because i didn't know and it's almost in some areas of the country it's a whole salary the equivalent of a whole salary that you lose um there's so much in the course that um i feel is important and I call it hit the ground running because I want people to be able to open up those places, not be fearful about having occupancy, but be, but have it already. Know what they're doing, when they're doing, who they're, who they're aiming for, getting ready for it. So we have sections within the course which are what you do in advance and how to get ready. Then it's the professionals that you might use and the systems you might use. On my course also, I have uh, my uh, tax specialist come who teaches you several uh, allowances that many accountants don't even know about Mm. for serviced accommodation i also have a broker that comes along that teaches you how to get finance in the correct fashion Mm. don't let people say to you don't worry they'll never find out too many people are doing that and we don't want to be the ones you know you don't want to be the one that gets stuck um Mm. and having a finger pointed at you but yeah the course is um run uh, generally on a Sunday and a Monday so that you're only taking one day out of your weekend. It includes accommodation and food other than one meal that we go out for a meal together. Uh, It's a fantastic opportunity to get together the people that are doing it as well, but it's only for groups of up to a maximum of nine uh, because I don't want it to be too squashed. Um, So do let me know if you're interested. I'm also in the process of putting it online. So, you know, watch this space. Mm -hmm.
2: Thank you. And if people want to get in touch with you, how's the best way to find out They more? can do
1: that either via uh, my email, which is gilly at gillybarlow.com. Gilly spelt g-i-l-l-i-e, gilly at gillybarlow.com. I have a YouTube uh, channel called Gilly Barlow Property. I have um, a Facebook, which is Gilly Barlow. If you want to be a friend or if you want to like and get onto my uh, property one, it's Gilly Barlow Property. Again, G-I-L-L-I-E um, Instagram as well is the same. Uh, so, you know, there are many ways. I also have a website, which has got, um, my, uh, my, all the courses I run and that's, uh, So if in doubt, just put Gilly Barlow. fantastic thank you very much and yeah i'm just gonna copy what michelle said thank
2: you for giving up your friday afternoon
1: to to talk to us
2: and it's been great you're obviously very passionate about what you do and what you share so it's yeah
1: i'm just so passionate (laughs) about making sure that people do the best they can and that it's all done with integrity and that we help each other that's really it so thank you so much for letting me share